Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. But what I will be presenting is the dark side as I've seen um, the development of Quakerism down through the centuries as a historian of the Quaker movement. That's kind of my area, my discipline. And so I've seen the, the great strengths of the Quaker movement, and I've also seen our weaknesses. And every, every denomination, every movement has, has both. Um, so to get started, I have a quote up here uh, by Michael Surtout. Some of you might know him. He was a philosopher, a theologian. And he said, this will give you an idea of my perspective, which is probably one that you all share. He says, where God appears to uh, be demanding revolutionary change, the devil always comes down on the side of the status quo. So yeah, I might have think about that for a few minutes. <laughs> but I believe that that really is true uh, across history. So... Um, it was interesting to me that at the yearly meeting, I went to one session that was Becky's, uh, the first presentation, I think that was Sunday night, and she really kind of introduced this topic <laughs> because she was talking, she referred to how Quakers have been exclusionary and legalistic and rigid and not welcoming. And what I'm gonna show you is kind of a myth-busting view of, of Quaker history. You know, we think of ourselves as being um, the great abolitionists. We ran the Underground Railroad. We were all for women's equality, and we were the backbone of the suffrage movement. And all those things are at least partly true, but the reality is that those were only a very few of the Quakers. Those weren't the meetings themselves supporting these more radical and revolutionary um, social justice issues. It was the heroic few prophetic voices who were leading the way. Now that wasn't the case in the very beginning of Quakerism. So let's look at, here's um, a good quote that I think captures the original vision of our early Quaker forefathers and mothers. And this is um, a quote by Isaac Pennington and he says this about our, our mission. Our life is love and peace and tenderness and bearing one with another and forgiving one another and not laying accusations one against another, but praying one for another and helping one another up with a tender hand. So mind truth and be a good saver in the places where ye live, the meek, innocent, tender, righteous life reigning in you governing over you and shining through you in the eyes of all with whom ye converse. So that is a good description of our original mission, our original vision, 
but also that our life is not always marked by these qualities. Though I would see West Hills meeting as a meeting that is very often marked by these qualities. But the larger institution of Quakerism, unfortunately, has not always lived up to our high ideals. So we were originally a movement for social and religious change. We were a revolutionary movement. We were a movement led by charismatic prophets who were empowered by the Holy Spirit to challenge the structures of society, the spiritual and the political structures of the society. And that's how it was in the first, certainly the first generation of Quakers. Um, but we also know that a prophet is not without honor in his or her own country. And within a few short centuries, within less than a century actually, we can see Quakers moving away from their radical revolutionary kind of prophetic calling and mission. So early Quakerism was definitely a prophetic movement. It was also what I like to think of as an alternative orthodoxy. And um, I got that term and actually my understanding of what a prophetic movement is from Richard Rohr. Many of you may be familiar with Richard Rohr. Uh, he is a prophet for the 21st century uh, Franciscan priest who um, talks a lot about the Franciscan movement as being an alternative orthodoxy. And if there is a movement within Catholicism that is similar to Quakerism, I think it is the Franciscan movement. There are a lot of parallels. So uh, an alternative orthodoxy is an orthodoxy that's loyal to biblical principles um, and yet has to cross what is then the kind of current theological boundaries uh, in order to bring renewal and reform to the church. Uh, it was an alternative to, Quakerism was an alternative to the Anglican church at the time, which was the state church. It was the orthodoxy of the time. It was um, a kind of Calvinistic orthodoxy that Quakers challenged, and also the whole concept of the church being also part of the state. Um, the early Quakers preached the equality of men and women, that everyone was equal, at least spiritually equal. Now, they didn't push for political rights for women yet, but they gave women opportunities that they had never had before, opportunities to preach, uh, to be spiritual leaders uh, at the time, and to have a, a public voice. Uh, they also taught um, a peace testimony. Now, not initially, but within a short time, they made a statement for, for peace. Um, and they actually, it was a new kind of pacifism. They were rejecting violence, and they were committed to social justice, but they also committed to political reform. And William Penn is a great example of that. He created a whole colony that was based on democratic principles that were foundational to kind of the Quaker movement. So pacifism, that was also a kind of a political theology. So they were challenging the stratification of society. They were challenging hierarchy. They were promoting uh, a lay leadership. Everyone was spirit-led. Everyone could be a spiritual leader. All are ministers. 
They were also challenging what Quakers actually called bibliolatry. You may have heard that term before. And what that means is worshiping the Bible rather than worshiping Christ. That's the simple way to understand that. Um, they had a high regard for scripture as, as an authority and as a revelation, but not the primary authority. Um, George Fox said that he came to direct the people to the spirit that gave rise to the scripture. That was how the early Quakers understood it. So revelation wasn't just confined to the Bible. Revelation could come through personal experience. And at a time where the orthodoxy was sola scriptura, scripture alone, that was considered heretical, and Quakers were, were called heretics. So they were definitely an alternative orthodoxy at the time. They were actually called heretics. Even from their own Puritan, other nonconformists of the time, who were called the Puritans, even they saw Quakers as heretical with their view of scripture and their pacifism and their equality of all people. So Quakers took what uh, we could call a prophetic stance, and here's what that would mean. Prophets are always on the edge of the inside of the established institution. Okay, they're, they're not on the outside, they're still on the inside, but they're at the very edge. Um, a prophet is both conservative, that is loyal to the tradition, but also liberal and radical at the same time. And George Fox was certainly that. Uh, he was both conservative and radical at the same time, and progressive in so many ways that went beyond um, what most people saw as possible at that time. Also, a prophet must be educated inside the system in order to have the freedom to critique that very system. Fox was raised in the church, in the Anglican church, actually in a kind of a Puritan stronghold. So he knew the church, he knew the theology, he knew the language, and in a sense, a prophet has to know that in order to be able to critique and challenge the system in which he or she is born. And then lastly, a prophet has to know the rules in order to break them properly for the sake of a larger and more essential value. And we had a great description of that in our sermon this morning in the scripture from Mark where Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He was breaking the rules for a higher, more essential value. And that was for care and compassion of people. So Jesus was understood as a prophet in his time. He loved and respected his Jewish, his Jewish religion, and yet he pushed the envelope wide open, and that's why he was eventually executed, um, healing people on the Sabbath. That was a deliberate statement against the dogmatic uh, view of the Sabbath of the time. And yet he honored the Jewish establishment. He told people that he had healed to go and show yourself to the priest. So he wasn't against religion, but he was challenging the boundaries, the rigidity, the legalistic rules that had been set up. So a true prophet will always kind of walk that thin line. And a prophet has to be ready not to be liked by the good people they respect. And I think that's something you have all experienced within Northwest Joy Meeting. Oh, 
that prophets have to step in and disrupt the, the usual so, social consensus. Um, how wonderful our group is. And they say, well, maybe, maybe it, that's not so much the case. Um, maybe it's just not entirely true. So that's the role of a prophet. And of course, no one wants to be a prophet. It's a very tough calling. And groups that are prophetic groups, it's a tough road to hoe. So this is just an example of how Quakerism changed. Mike loved uh, these images because it kind of shows the, um, the evolution of Quakerism in a very short time. So in the first image, you see a, a woman on top of a, a tub speaking, probably in a pub or some kind of public place. That was scandalous. That was totally challenged the conventions of society. But it was also a testimony to equality. Uh, in the second image, it says, 12 Quakers quite still. Uh, I mean, Quakers did worship in silence, and they really respected and valued silence. But by the next century, by the, the 1800s, they were mostly known for their separation and for their sense of kind of turning inward, not their social activism as in the 17th century. And, and that happens is the immediacy of the original experience, it's hard to pass that on to the next generation and the generation after. So that tends to be muted. And so because they haven't had that actual experience themselves, they instead create behavioral codes to try to keep people religious. And so behavioral forms then will replace the inward experience. And that's what happens in succeeding generations. And so gradually, kind of legalistic codes develop and kind of sectarian distinctions that separate Quakerism from the world or the culture. Um, and so there's much more emphasis on group conformity. And as you see in the third image, everyone, all the women are dressed alike and all the men are dressed alike. Minimal diversity in the congregation. Um, and there's establishment of a strong corporate discipline to keep everyone in line. And the final authority is given to the church business meeting. And that happened within Quakers. Um, and the other thing that happened to Quakers is that um, they were entrepreneurial spirits. They weren't able to uh, be a part of many of the professions because they couldn't go to Oxford and Cambridge, which were the colleges of the time. And so they became entrepreneurs, and they became, they developed businesses. Um, the Industrial Revolution also happens at the same time, and that helps them to become really great industrialists. And so there's this rising tide of economic prosperity among Quakers, and many of them amassed great fortunes. Um, and so they became very protective of the status quo. And they became more conservative, more inward-turning, and separate, separation from the culture, but certainly not um, the climate of, of industry and commercialism, and even slave trading, because that was an important part of many of their uh, businesses. So by, by the uh, 18th century, the next century, um, they move into a period that was known as quietism. That's the term given to the kind of the 1800s and into the, the 1900s as well. 
And as they say, they become much more conforming and inward turning, and yet, that is also the time when some of our greatest prophets emerged during this quietest period. And here we have images of three of, of probably some of our greatest prophets uh, that we have actually produced as a movement. Um, Anthony Benesat, some of you may know that name. You certainly know John Woolman. We love John Woolman um, and revere him. And then um, the third is probably one that you may not have heard of. Perhaps some of you have read any Quaker history. His name is Benjamin Lay. And they were probably the three greatest prophets, social prophets, of this generation of the 1800s. And they emerged from this quietest environment. Um, Lay, who was the earliest of these prophets, was a little ahead of his time. Um, he recognized the sin of slavery and tried to convince Quakers that, that they needed to free their slaves and stop being involved in slave trading. Um, he, was, he was born in England and began his kind of activism in England. What happened to him? He was disowned. He came to America. He wasn't very welcome here either, uh, but he kept writing pamphlets and, and presenting his very radical kind of revolutionary ideas. Uh, he didn't have much of an effect. He was not welcomed in Quaker meetings. He was considered... Um, just kind of an odd, eccentric person, and even though his wife was actually a Quaker minister, so he, he was kind of, um, no one really paid attention to what he said, but two people did, one, Anthony Benesat and John Woolman. They read his material, they talked with him, and they were very uh, inspired by his ideas. And so while he didn't have much in effect, he eventually laid foundation for Woolman and Benesat when they began writing their own pamphlets and speaking out against slavery. Uh, Benesat has been called by uh, none other than Irv Renlinger, who is also a Quaker historian, <laughs> the single most prolific anti-slavery writer and the most influential advocate of human rights on either side of the Atlantic in the 18th century. I mean, that is, that is huge. Um, until recently, he was hardly known. Woolman was known very well, but Benesat, not so much. They were very good friends. They worked together. Uh, they shared ideas. And they were part of a small circle of radical reformers in the 1800s who were trying to reshape and reform the Quaker society. Now, most of them worked just within the Quaker movement. Woolman basically was trying to get Quakers to free their slaves. Benesat even went beyond Quakerism, and he wrote to important thinkers and leaders around the world, such as John Wesley and some of the well-known philosophers of the time. And they listened to him, and actually they took his writings and, and borrowed them in their own writings. Didn't give him credit, but that's okay. Plagiarism wasn't a problem back then. It was just done all the time. Uh, John Wesley was one example of someone that took one of uh, Benesat's pamphlets, condensed it and rewrote it as Thoughts on Slavery, and it was like a best-selling pamphlet. <laughs> and and uh, Benesat thanked him for it. He was really glad to get the word out by someone who was as respected as John Wesley. So he had a huge impact on uh, it, the anti-slavery movement in this period of time. Um, so Quakers now, they're, they're still kind of on the cutting edge of history because they have these 
at least two or more prophets who people are really listening to. And eventually, um, through the, the writings of these folks, and here's three examples of Lay's um, pamphlet, which says, all slave keepers that keep the innocent in bondage are apostates. Uh, he was pretty good at name calling, which is one of the reasons why people didn't like him too much. Um, uh, Woolman and Benesad had a little more indirect method. They weren't quite as in your face as Lay. And really, the society wasn't ready for Lay's, Lay's writing. Uh, but Benesad begins writing in a more gentler way that slavery is inconsistent with every Christian and moral virtue. And in his pamphlet, you can see this icon of uh, an African crying, saying, am I not a man? and a brother. That becomes an icon of the abolition movement in the next century. They use that figure. And then um, the women's movement have a, a women in, put a woman, woman's figure in that icon, and it becomes symbolic of the, uh, the women's movement and the suffrage movement. You know, am I not a woman and a sister? So um, they began to have an impact, and eventually, it took about 30 years, Quakers were able to rid themselves of slaveholding and slave trading. And they were the first denomination to do that, the first Christian denomination to rid themselves of slavery. Even though for 100 years before that, they were heavily implicated in the slave trade, and many of them owned slaves, but they became the leading anti-slavery church in America. And this is 100 years before the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, so you can see how ahead of uh, the times they were. Um, they were also the largest of American denominations at that time to uh, exclude slaveholders from their fellowship. And yet, That's the one I want. Okay. Um, oh, I did want to talk about, yeah, this one. Um, this is a quote from Gary Wills. You may know he's a famous writer, historian, journalist, and he has a book called Head and Heart, where he has a really glowing chapter on, on Quakers, which in many ways are, are good, but he also gives them maybe more credit than, than they're due. He said, the Quakers made possible all later forms of abolition, by proving that one can be a sincere Christian and yet defy the scriptural endorsements of slavery. And this, this is an important quote because, as you all know, um, scripture does not condemn slavery. In fact, it kind of supports it. And so in order to be anti-slavery, to be an abolitionist, you really have to go against the literal interpretation of scripture. There's no other way to get around it. And that's why most Christian churches, the majority of Christian churches, the majority of Christians, all felt that slavery was God-ordained. And to challenge it was going against the Bible, going against scripture. But Quakers made possible a different interpretation of scripture, a way to read it differently um, in their arguments against slavery that soon became uh, the dominant position, but originally the Bible was used um, to condone slavery and to endorse it. Okay, so what happened though? 
by the 19th century, the turn of the next century, um, Quakers became pretty complacent about what they had done. Um, and they were basically severed from the reform impulses of an earlier generation. Uh, many Quaker meetings had what they called the black pew. So when African Americans actually came to their meetings, they had to sit in a separate section in the black pew. Um, there were a number of, of black African Americans who actually attended Quaker meetings and they really looked up to Quakers because Quakers said help them bring them freedom. Uh, very, very few blacks ever became members of Friends meetings. Even those that wanted to become members, they were never invited uh, to enter into a membership. Even some that were um, attended Quaker meeting for most of their life, never became members. So what happened is that Quakers certainly understood that, that slavery was wrong, but they weren't able to eliminate racism from their ranks. So, um, as you can see on the bold points here, Quaker complacency, and actually it was even more than complac complacency, it was actually racism. Uh, they had a Negro pew separating blacks and whites in worship, few blacks submitted to membership, and even within an anti-slavery Quaker society, there was pervasive social prejudice. One of the leading abolitionists of the day, a name that you probably have heard of, is Levi Coffin. And he was from uh, Richmond, Indiana, where I just came from the last five years, so he is revered in Richmond, Indiana. Uh, the Levi Coffin House is a museum, and you can go and take tours. Um, and so it's often thought, particularly because of Henry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, that Quakers ran the Underground Railroad. And Levi Coffin was the father of the Underground Railroad, the president. Well, he was a huge influence in developing and helping slaves escape. But again, I have to say, he was just a very small minority voice among Quakers at the time. And here's what he said. It tried a man's soul to be an abolitionist in those days when brickbacks Brick, bats, stones, and rotten eggs were the arguments we had to meet. Now that was mostly from the general public, but even within their own meetings, there was tremendous hostility. Quakers didn't become violent about it, but there was a lot of hostility. And Levi Coffin was actually disciplined by his meeting for his work on the Underground Railroad. He and a number of ministers, even though they were uh, respected Quaker ministers, they were disciplined by their meetings for their work on the Underground Railroad. They were disobeying the laws of the land. And that was the Fugitive Slave Act, which required uh, even states where there, even free states had to return slaves to their owners. And so they were breaking the law by helping slaves to escape. So, um, Quaker meetings characterized members of the anti-slavery society as, quote, disturbers of Israel, uh, committed to turning the world upside down, which is really ironic because George Fox was accused of that in his own day of turning the world upside down. Um, beginning in 1837 and then spreading to all other Quaker meetings, um, friends advised their members to keep free from any intimate associations with persons whose opinions and principles are widely different than ours. 
which meant anyone that was involved in the anti-slavery society or the abolition movement. And that, went, uh, that advice went to all yearly meetings, uh, including Indiana yearly meeting, which was actually the hotbed of radicalism at the time. Uh, Indiana was the largest yearly meeting at 25,000 members at this time. The most Quakers were right there in Richmond, and there was a lot of radical movement there, and a number of Quakers were leading this movement, but Indiana Yearly Meeting as a whole did not support it. And eventually the doors were actually closed to any uh, abolition speakers. And sadly, the Quaker meetings were the last church to actually allow it, and then they closed their doors to abolitionist speakers. It's hard to imagine that, that abolitionists um, were, there was such hostility to them that even violence erupted when they would speak, but that's, that's the case. Uh, this is a critique by an African-American abolitionist of the time, and this comes from a book that I'd really recommend if you're interested in the study of race relations and Quakerism, uh, the book Fit for Freedom, Not for Friendship. I would encourage you to read. It's a big tome, it's like over 500 pages, but it's well worth the read uh, to get the whole story of Quakers and uh, race relations. And in that book, this, this quote is given. The Society of Friends had a lever by which they could uplift the world and they would not raise it. They had a trumpet by which they could have given a blast that would awake the world and they would not blow it. Really sad commentary to hear, but that really is the case of Quakers in the first half of the 19th century. They were just not willing, they didn't have the courage to challenge conventional attitudes and the status quo at the time, uh, mainly because they thought it would be shattering to their meetings. <laughs> really, absolutely the case. Unity was the most important thing. And I mean, you could even find them using the word shattering. So, history repeats itself. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't have that. There's the quote. Okay. Um, so, were Quakers the peaceable kingdom? Um, they like to think of themselves as kind of representing those ideals. And these are two famous paintings by Edward Hicks, who was the first Quaker painter. And actually, even being a painter was uh, not allowed in the Quaker movement at the time. Anything to do with the arts, that was like a trivial pursuit. Uh, he was a Quaker minister, but his gifts really were in art. He was an artist. And his work was not appreciated by the Quakers. Uh, he tried farming. It was a disaster. Finally, the Quaker said, look, you've got to support your family. We'll let you paint wagons and do kind of design work. <laughs> you know, you've got to support your family. <laughs> and, and that's what he did for a long time. But he also would, would do these paintings. He did over 60 different versions of the Peaceable Kingdom, which is actually based on a text in Isaiah, one you're probably familiar with. He never sold these paintings. He just gave them to family members. But it was his his vision of what Quakerism could be, but also realistically what it wasn't. And what's so interesting about these paintings, if you're at all familiar with them, uh, you might see that there's um, a ravine that goes through uh, the, the painting, kind of on the left side. And on one side of the ravine, you'll see a little group of, 
of people there, small figures. That's William Penn and his treaty with the, with the Indians, Native Americans, which, um, which Hicks just revered Penn, and he thought, that, that's what Quakerism should be. We should treat all people equally and, and make treaties with the Indians that we actually keep, right? And so he often will put Penn's famous treaty with Indians into his paintings as kind of symbolic of, of what Quakers could do. Um, but he also would put this ravine in, and the ravine represents the divisions that were happening in Quakerism in his time. So he's in the, the 19, or the 1830s, uh, 40s. Um, his, his uncle was Elias Hicks, who became the leader of the Hicksites, and that's the first big division that happens in 1828. And he, he was a part of it, he observed that, and he was heartbroken that Quakers were dividing. And so as he paints these peaceable kingdoms, that ravine gets larger and larger <laughs> as Quakers continue to divide and split. And um, the 19th century was just a period of all kinds of convulsions within Quakerism. There was just splits and schisms that just continued all through the century. So um, peaceable kingdom with a question mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's also symbolic of the, the children are being separated from the animals. In some of his earlier paintings, they're all together, all looking very happy. <laughs> but in later paintings, they're, they're all looking a little sad, surprised, and the children seem to be separated from, actually, the animals. I think, again, that's, that's symbolic of the divisions that are occurring. They just broke his heart. Finally, towards the end of his life, he kind of comes to terms with it. So, well, this is, this is just the way it has to be but it really broke his heart, and his, his images are a beautiful symbolic representation of what was happening among the Quakers. Anyone else that has a question any time, please raise your hand. I know I'm going really, really fast. I'm gonna to try to give you some time for questions at the end, so I gotta keep my eye on the time. So I could say a whole lot more about Quakers and racism, um, but we need also to move into Quakers and, and gender issues. And, and we can do that by looking at two early Quaker, very heroic Quaker social prophets, uh, Sarah Grimke and Angelina Grimke. How many of you heard of the Grimke sisters? Oh, a lot of you have heard of them. Good. Uh, some groups that I, I asked, that they've never heard of them at all. Uh, I think they've become fairly well known now because a, a book recently was written called The Invention of Wings uh, by Sue Monk Kidd. How many of you have read that book? Okay, if you haven't read it, you really need to read that book. It's historical fiction. It's, it's a fictionalized account of the lives of Sarah and Angelima, but um, Sue Monkid really does her research, and it's very historic. I mean, she, it's grounded in historical facts. She invents some characters to make the story um, to move along, but um, she really has wonderful portraits of the Grimpy sisters that I think are, are very realistic. Um, so what's so fascinating about these two folks, they were not Quakers. They grew up in the South, in uh, South Carolina. Their father was a plantation owner, had lots of slaves. Uh, they grew up in a culture where, where owning slaves was just like owning a car. I mean, everyone had slaves. No one questioned it. And yet they questioned it even as teenagers. Why? 
Who knows? The Spirit speaks. The Spirit breaks through to certain individuals. They were very unlikely uh, sisters to become social prophets. So from South Carolina to Philadelphia, how would that happen? Um, Sarah's father was very ill, and he, it was recommended that he go to Philadelphia for treatment. And so Sarah takes him to Philadelphia, comes in contact with Quakers. Um, on a trip back, she's given the Journal of John Woolman to read, and it speaks to her, and his struggles with slavery kind of mirror her own struggles. Uh, she, she eventually decides that she's going to join Quakers. She moves to Philadelphia and joins with Philadelphia Yearly Meeting because she sees Quakers as the best hope for anti-slavery, for abolition. Well, unfortunately, she's disillusioned. <laughs> uh, she, works, she stays with Quakers for a while, but when she tries to speak in meetings, she's silenced. Uh, she's, her, her work uh, against slavery is appreciated by some, but the meeting as a whole will not support her or her sister Angelina. Angelina, who is much younger also, then comes to Philadelphia, joins with Quakers, she becomes the first woman to speak public, publicly to a legislature in uh, New England. Women were never given that opportunity. And she becomes what was called an abolition agent, which is a, a person that kind of speaks out, travels around, and speaks on the issue of, of abolition. There were only two women, uh, Sarah and Angelina were the first two that, that spoke. And she was met with huge hostile crowds, not only because she was speaking against slavery, but because she was a woman speaking to mixed audiences in public. That was considered promiscuous speaking. That's actually the term that they used, promiscuous speaking. And she was called Devilina by the press. <laughs> so um, but she, she was called a blasphemer and a heretic, and I mean, she faced all kinds of hostility. Sarah was more of the theorist. Sarah, Sarah didn't do much speaking. She was a real introvert, but she wrote. And she wrote um, Letters on the Equality of the Sexes uh, in 1837. It was the first kind of biblical argument, uh, at least by an American, for women's equality. So these women are amazing uh, social prophets that were speaking really before the actual women's movement took effect and when speaking out against abolition was... Uh, the height of abhorrence by the general public. And unfortunately, um, they didn't remain Quakers. Um, Angelina decides to, to marry a non-Quaker. Uh, this is her wedding. Uh, at that time, if you married outside of the meeting, you were automatically disowned. So the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting actually wanted to disown her, but didn't quite know how to do it. But when she decides to marry someone who wasn't a Quaker, well, technically, then she could be disowned. So she was uh, disowned. She married um, another abolitionist, and uh, Theodore Weld, who was also a well-known uh, ab uh, abolition agent at the time. Actually, he was a convert of Charles Finney. He was an evangelical abolitionist. Um, they fall in love, working together, get married. Sarah goes to the wedding. She's disowned because she attended the wedding. So Quakers were able to expel these two amazing, uh, heroic, what? Religious. Well, they did, okay. They weren't nice enough to use that term. <laughs> they still use the term disown. <laughs> yeah, but 
<laughs> they were released, but it is interesting because they, they were so hoping to find a way to release them. <laughs> and then the wedding was, was uh, a great way to do it. Um, the wedding was quite amazing because it was what they, they called it an amalgamation. Now, the amalgamation was the word that was used for intermixing of races, and that just wasn't done. Technically, it means a marriage of a black man and a white woman, or you know, a mixed marriage. But even just having um, African Americans attend the wedding was considered amalgamation. Um, and so, when they actually had this marriage, it was 1838, and uh, in the papers, they were saying the, no, the most notorious woman in America is, is marrying the most mobbed woman, the most mobbed man in America, just Theodore Well. Whenever he spoke, huge mobs would turn up. So uh, it was quite um, uh, a wedding that was just announced in every paper, and it was abhorrent to think that there were uh, blacks and whites together at, at a, a marriage celebration. And they had, you can see a black minister who prayed over them, as well as a, a white woman, her sister Sarah prayed. And uh, just having a, a kind of an interracial wedding was considered horrific. And when I did this, at, uh, when I did this workshop at, at uh, Northwest Julie Meeting, I did say, I, I never really talked about LGBT issues directly, but I did say that in the 1900s, an interracial marriage would be as abhorrent as a same-sex marriage today. I got a lot of uh, pushback on that. <laughs> Some people said, I, I like your presentation, but you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, so anyway, they had this marriage, and actually it was very a Quaker, it was a very Quaker wedding. They didn't have actually a minister perform the ceremonies. They wrote their own vows. Uh, Theodore, in his, when he speaks, he talks about, he kind of delivers a political message about women's equality. Uh, they had a marriage certificate that everyone signed. So even though they had been released, <laughs> they were Quakers in their hearts, and they, they remained really um, loyal to Quaker principles, even though they could no longer be part of, of Quaker meetings. And Weld himself, who, although he wasn't officially a Quaker never joined, was really quite drawn to Quakers, and had they been more open, probably would have become a Quaker. But. So two days after that wedding, um, Angelina, they were like, well, they wanted to show you could get married and still be social activists. You didn't have to like go off on a honeymoon. So two days later, she's delivering the speech at this newly uh, built Pennsylvania Hall in Philadelphia that had been built by donations from abolitionists and radical reformers as a place where uh, men and women could come and speak on social issues because they weren't allowed in churches anymore. They're, they couldn't find meeting places. So they have this huge campaign to collect money to build this uh, Pennsylvania Hall, which is kind of the, the symbol of free speech and social justice in, in Philadelphia. Um, uh, um, John Greenleaf Whittier had his office there. They had a reform paper, and it was just uh, amazing. And they're celebrating, the very next day after the wedding, they're celebrating uh, the first um, use of this building. And Angelina starts speaking, and bricks start to come through the windows. Soon stones come through the windows. And she keeps speaking. She does her whole speech and is just not afraid. Uh, in fact, it was her speech of a lifetime, really. It was beautiful, memorable speech. 
That night, it was burned down. The whole building was burned to the ground by mobs. And it was partly because not only was she speaking for, um, for abolition, there were blacks and whites there together, and particularly the women, when, after they would speak, they would walk down the hall arm in arm, black and white together. And that was just horrific to these mobs outside. And that night, they burned it down. The police didn't do a thing. Uh, in fact, they probably couldn't at that point, although there was certainly reason to believe that this was going to happen, but it, it just happened nevertheless. Um, and so the symbol of, of freedom was a charred ruin by the next day. So, um, just as, as a summary, we may not get to women's rights today, but that might have to be another workshop. So, a summary of the fragmentation of reform in this period of time. There were all kinds of splits, all kinds of releasings over abolition. Uh, as I said, 1841 Quaker meeting houses from east to west were closed uh, to any uh, anti-slavery societies. Uh, most, for most Quakers of all branches, the policy on slavery was, quote, to wait for the Lord to open the door. Don't do anything. Let's just wait and see what happens. Um, in 1843, Indiana Yearly Meeting, um, a group split off from Indiana Yearly Meeting. They were called the Anti-Slavery Friends. They were about 10% of the meeting, so they would have been over 2,000 that split off. Um, Levi Coffin would have been among those. Uh, and this is not just the Orthodox meetings. I want to make sure you know this happened within the Hicksite, Hicksite meetings just as much as within the Orthodox. We often think the Hicksites were the liberals of the time. They were not <laughs> uh, at all. They, were the same, they had the same attitudes as the Orthodox when it came to abolition. Um, it, within the Hicksite churches, many of them formed new congregational friends, they called themselves, or progressive friends. Um, in upstate New York, whole, whole meetings were laid down. That's what they called it, not released. They laid them down. Um, so entire meetings were laid down over uh, abolition. And it wasn't just abolition. It was also women's rights, because the women who were the abolition agents, the women who were speaking for abolition, also recognized that, oh, wait a minute, as women, we don't have any rights either. <laughs> and so they began speaking out for, for women's rights as well. Um, in Philadelphia, when 56 abolitionists were marginalized by Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, they left and formed their own uh, Pennsylvania meeting of progressive friends. Some individuals actually experimented with new forms of community with non-friends. That was really radical. Uh, and they created their own kind of intentional communities. One group was called the Society for Universal Inquiry and Reform. And there were a number of those um, kind of utopian societies that, that sprung up during this period of time. And Quaker, some of these Quaker um, social prophets, abolitionists, became a part of that. So that's just a real quick summary of some of the fragmentation just over reform. And this doesn't include the Hicksite Orthodox split or the Gurneyite Wilburites, all these other theological splits. These are just uh, splits over mainly the abolition movement. So I think I'm just going to skip to the, we're going to have to skip through suffrage right now. Um, 
we'll have to get back to that another time. The prophet's dilemma, always, do we leave or do we stay? And I have two kind of examples here of, of that dilemma from two people who were leading um, voices in abolition and for women's rights at the time. One was Lucretia Mott, it's probably a name you recognize. Um, she was a Hicksite Quaker. She was a, she was a Quaker minister, minister for years, um, had a lot of respect for the early meeting, but when she started speaking out for abolition and for women's rights, she was part of that first uh, Seneca Falls convention, she had tremendous opposition from her yearly meeting. Uh, she was called a heretic, and it wasn't until the end of her life that she finally was um, kind of respected again. But she faced tremendous opposition. Um, her, her biggest opponent was another Quaker minister, a very weighty minister, whose name happened to be George Fox White, <laughs> who actually called her a heretic. And, said that, uh, that she was a sinner and a heretic. So she faced huge opposition uh, from even the, orth uh, the Hicksites. So it wasn't just the Orthodox. The other uh, person is Abby Kelly, Abby Kelly Foster, who actually, when Angelina retired from her speaking, she took Angelina Grimke's space, uh, uh, place as an abolition agent and began speaking out on, on abolition and, and suffrage as well. Lucretia Mott felt that you needed to stay no matter what, and she did. Um, even though she was often silenced by her meeting, she was eldered from the floor. Uh, she was sometimes um, not given traveling minutes, and she was accused of undermining traditional Quakerism. Pardon that? Well, she would stand up to speak, or she would be giving a message, and someone would stand up and say, you don't have any right to say that. Uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. Hicksite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was not, uh, her opinions were not respected. She had some followers. Her own meet, she had people within her own meeting that supported her, so she had enough followers. She had enough weight as a Quaker that they were never able to expel her. But she did have to deal with tremendous opposition and, and many opponents, including some of the leading um, Hicksite friends of the time. Okay. Um, she felt that you needed to stay. You needed to continue to be the prophetic voice within the system. If you left, then you know, who would be speaking out? Um, so she was constantly encouraging uh, other radical abolitionists to stay within their meetings and to be the voice there. Abby Kelly Foster, on the other hand, uh, said, no, eventually you have to leave. Um, and so she actually resigned. She was probably going to be disowned eventually, but she resigned before that happened. And she said, that the friend's principles had taken deep root in my heart, but she couldn't accept that uh, the work of slavery should wait until the Lord opens the way. She said, he never shut the way. That's what she said when, when she resigned. And so she felt that her work, in order to do her work, she had to leave the Society of Friends, though she, she remained, I think, Quaker in her heart and still uh, was motivated by Quaker principles, but um, her, 
Her answer to the prophet's dilemma was that you have to leave. Lucretia Mott was, you need to stay. Other groups left, some of them, many of the women that I have researched left for a time and then came back. Some never did, but some did. Um, some started new meetings. And some left and became kind of more secular prophets. So lots of different options. So I'm going to end on that note. I've got a lot more uh, material, but that should give you an idea of what I see as, as the dark side of Quakerism and some of our history, and hopefully not making you too depressed <laughs> about it, but seeing that his, history does repeat itself. So questions and comments. Are you going to let, kind of let, moderate the Q&A? Yeah. Okay. So you call on the people. Okay. Mike has his hand up. <laughs> so Carol said that she's never been called a Quaker rock star before. Can we just have a sense of the meeting? Is Carol spent, uh, Carol, <laughs> uh, a Quaker rock star? Yeah. It, it, is, it is now minuted. <laughs> well, I'd rather be the rock star than the Quaker prophet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's obvious that we could have 100 questions, um, and we only have five minutes. So um, I think it's clear we're probably going to need a part two, hopefully, at some point to even cover, cover the other half of your presentation. But does anybody have a question? Um, we could probably only have time for about two questions. Does anybody have one that's really burning? Claire does. So, I wonder what you think is unique to Quakerism that makes this dark side emerge? Or do you think it's just human nature? Or is it the Quaker process? Or I think that's something you didn't quite touch on, so I'd like to hear. Yeah, that's, that's not a question I could probably really answer in a few minutes. Um, I think every tradition has a dark side. I think because of the Quakers, it seems darker than just dark because we have such a vision for equality and that we don't, we don't hold up that vision and that we lose that vision. And so when we, we, when we take this turn to the dark side and when we separate ourselves from uh, being voices for social justice, when we don't accept our prophetic role as as a tradition, then I think we've lost our mission. We lost the reason that we're here. I mean, why have Quakers? Quakers are a very, very small denomination. Why should we even exist? You know, what do, does the world need us? Well, I think they need our prophetic voice, and that is our calling. And when we lose that, we're losing our reason for being. That's my that's my view. Now, others might disagree with, but that's that's what I think. Because I see our prophetic calling is so essential to our identity and who we are. Another question? I have time for about one more. Really? One thing that really puzzles me where LGBTQ issues are concerned, I mean, slavery was legal and widely accepted. Women's rights, you know, were not thought about. Those were all going against the grain, but yet somehow Quakerism feels very behind on the LGBTQ mm -hmm, question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts about mm -hmm, that? Mm -hmm. I think that 
the, uh, the movement towards gender equality just comes right out of the other issues. I mean, slavery, women's rights came out of the slavery issue, out, out of abolition. I think for today, it is the LBGT issues. It is gender equality. I mean, that is, that is kind of the next stage. Quakers just don't want to go there. They said, we've done our work. You know, we've, we've worked for abolition. We've worked for women's rights. We've done our work. I, I don't know why. I think because, possibly because it has to do with sex. We don't want to touch it. I don't know. You know, why we're so afraid to go there. That's, that's a really good question. I don't have all the answers. And, you know, they can say, well, it's because the Bible says that, you know, homosexuality is a sin. But, you know, we, we changed our interpretation of the Bible on slavery and even on women. I mean, the Bible is patriarchal, too. We changed our interpretation. Why are we not willing to change it here? I think it just takes time. It takes time for social change to happen. Uh, it, took, it took a long time for slaves to be freed. I mean, from the time that, that Woolman and Benesset and Lalay began, it took, you know, 100 years for it to become even like a relevant issue for a lot of people. And then it took a war. <laughs> so I think it's just social change. It takes a long time for people to change and individuals to change. And it's human nature, I guess. I think change will happen. I'm optimistic that change will happen. But it may not be in my lifetime. Well, it does feel It does feel inevitable, but it seems strange that in these other issues it felt like Quakerism was kind of in front polling society. And for the LGBTQ question, I feel like society is polling Quakerism along. Mm -hmm. I think in the 19th century, society was pulling Quakerism. I, I mean, I think that began to happen. I mean, they, they were ahead. They, they, had, they recognized that there was this transcendence beyond the culture, and they weren't totally captivated by it. But that, kept, that changed gradually. And by, even, even by the, the um, 18th century, change is happening. But there's still enough um, commitment to listening to the prophetic voices that they were able to change their meetings. By the 1900s, many of, they're so split on it, they're so conflicted on it, and they had people that were so, as strongly opposed as they were speaking out you know, for the abolition of slavery that there was just this clash. But I don't have the whole answer there. <laughs> but I do feel that the spirit is moving and that things will gradually change, but it's just such a slow process and it's very disheartening to those who are on the cutting edge of change. Well, folks, it's one o'clock, right on the dot. <laughs> So let's, uh, let's thank Carol again for coming and speaking. Thank you, Carol. Have a lovely afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for inviting me on, on your Labor Day weekend, too. <laughs>